Heavenly Father, we come to you um, this morning and as we gather together uh, to fix our eyes upon you, uh, that you will bring us to a place of submission and a full attention that we may hear your word and this word can truly change us. And also, um, just pray also for those who are grieving down in New Zealand, whether they are Muslims or not, uh, they are grieving over the lost beloved family members. And Lord, we uh, pray, we, don't, we uh, confess that we don't fully understand why these things happen, uh, but Lord, we once again uh, look to you. The only thing we can really do is to pray uh, that you would look down upon them, that you would, uh, just as you have heard Hagar, but that you would look down upon these grieving family members. Uh, may your presence be with them, minister to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> the title of my message is Divine Mercy and the Folly of the Flesh. Have you guys had uh, those what was I thinking moments? You didn't realize it at the moment, but as you look back on it, you kind of shake your head and think to yourself, what was I thinking? Uh, I don't know about you, but um, you know, I've had plenty of those. Uh, some are pretty embarrassing, uh, to be honest with you. Some others, I just simply shudder just to think about that. Some of the things that I've done, the, some of the things that I've said. Um, many, many years ago when I was a youth pastor, we had a youth retreat, and then we had some people from outside the church that were invited by their friends from our youth group. So they just came, and the, I didn't realize it at the time. The first day, they didn't come to any of our worship service. And on, also on the second day, I still wasn't, because it was a, like a large group, over 100 students, rambling kids just going all over the place. And, um, and so I didn't realize, but a couple of the counselors were uh, telling me that, hey, there are these guys that came along with our students. They haven't shown up to the worship service. What's going on? So I said, like, let's go look for them. And so we just found them in their uh, dorms, and they were just doing drugs, right? So the, the, the purpose of them coming to our youth retreat was to get away from home so that they can do drugs. I flipped, right? And so I said, and it wasn't actually a Christian uh, university, so there was a policy of no drugs right, in their dorms. And so I said, all right, you guys are going home. right?" But also at the same time, I found out that one of our students who brought them was also with them, and he was high too. And guess what I did as a youth pastor? He begged me, he's like, my parents are going to kill me if they find out. And if you send me home, they're going to kill me. I don't know what's going to happen with me. Like my dad is a pretty serious guy. He did taekwondo and all those things. I don't know what he's going to do to me. So you know what I did? I basically said, okay, you can stay. So my student, I let him stay because I felt bad for him. I uh, turned a blind eye on him. And I actually, I myself drove these kids, the rest of the kids who are not from our church, I actually drove them home that night. I just got there like after midnight and... Uh, we had to just call their parents, but in my mind, they're not my kids, right? So I don't really care. 
But my kid, even though he did the same thing as these guys did, but I let him stay. And I didn't tell his parents what he has done. What was I thinking? I, I, it, to this day, I'm like, what have I done? Right? Can you imagine those guys think of me or like the Christians, what I have done? Um, you know, a lot of the things that we have done, like what was I thinking moments, some are kind of on the spur of the moment, but others are more calculated. It's more premeditated. You know, just like those, uh, you know, you guys heard about the celebrities. They're bribing their college officials to get their kids, you know, to, into the prestigious schools. It wasn't on the spur of the moment. They kind of thought about this, planned it out, right? Today's passage shows us a drama unfolding in Abram's family. He has received God's covenant in the uh, preceding chapter. And you think that because God has revealed himself and entered into a covenant with Abram, that that, uh, that his life would be smooth sailing. But that's not the case. So what does this passage tell us? The first thing, uh, the first point, I, I have two points. The first point I want to bring out to you is the folly of the flesh. The folly of the flesh. You know, as this part, uh, part of Genesis has been revolving around Abram, we have noticed that he's had his what was he thinking moments, right? Leading up to this moment, right? When he was in, as they were entering into Egypt, you know, he told basically, uh, he told Sarai, his wife, to tell lies, right? Also, like even in previous chapter, even though God revealed himself, I will be your shield, right? You will have a great reward, and yet he did not really trust God. It's like, I don't know, God. What can you give me, really? Right? So he was really, he's had his share of what was he thinking moments as we read in this portion of Genesis. And it was not just um, Abram, but now we see Sarai, his wife, not to be outdone by her husband, kind of just getting, uh, uh, getting into the action, and he, it reveals her mistrust in God. Life is messy. Right? Human relationships are messy. Right? Whether we like to admit it or not, our life is full of drama. We don't have to look at K-drama to see all the drama that's going on in our lives. It's because of our brokenness. We all are broken, fallen people. And it gets messy. Life gets messy. Our relationships with uh, one another gets messy primarily because we get away from God's design and God's purpose for our lives. And we stray from God's purpose because we do not fully trust God but ourselves. Someone said faith is living without scheming. And I think that makes a lot of sense. That faith is really living without scheming. The moment we take matters into our hands, basically what we are saying to God, even though we may not say it outright, is God, I cannot really trust Trust you. I, I cannot wait for you. I don't know when or if this is going to happen for me. So it would, it would be better for me if I do this my way and it starts now. I cannot wait anymore, God, for you to somehow 
pull this out. I remember, uh, you know, I got married when I was 40, but leading, so can you imagine, like, as, as an old single guy, seeing all my friends getting hooked up and they're just having, you know, just getting, you know, getting married and all those things, I, I panicked. I was like, God, year after year, what's happening? And I hated myself because, I mean, it's not like I didn't have any, you know, opportunities, and yet, I, you know, I just didn't really go for some of the really good sisters, so and I hated myself for that, and but you know, I started panning God, and I started trying to you know, just negotiate with God. God, I'm in ministry, and how am I going to ever like, minister to the single woman if I'm a single guy? I mean, that's just a no-no, right? I couldn't like, meet up with the single ladies, right? Because how is that going to come across, right? And so I was like, God, you better get me, you better get me like, married. Otherwise, it's, it's your loss, God. And so I was desperate, and then I tried to like, reason with God, and then I... And, you know, and I, I said, basically, it's enough for me to wait on God to do something about this. And so I said, I'm going to do this my way. So I would just, you know, I would just ask friends. And back then, you know, like, we only had eHarmony. So actually, you know, the, for the app, there was no Coffee Meets Bagel and all these other apps. And so I even got on that. And I tried to just, like, work on that and t- took forever. So I just stopped in the middle. Um, but I just, you know... And I try to make that happen. And every single time, right, God would just like break me and just like things would not work out. Even it may seem like it would go somewhere. It looks promising. And then God would just break it down, right? Every single time because I did not trust God. I could not wait for his timing, right? And there was a time when like um, I was so convicted by this one message that I actually said, God, okay, I'm going to just give up uh, my desire to, to get married. And I cried. And I'm not an emotional guy, but when I actually prayed it, I cried because that means like I'm not going to get married. I'm going to remain single for the rest of my life. And what is going to happen to me? And so I cried. Oh, I, it's funny now for you guys, but it was serious time for me. I, it just killed me. But all the, but you know, as I look back once again, all the efforts and the trying that I did to get hooked up, it was just because I did not trust God, right? Even as a pastor. You see, our flesh is the problem. And when I say flesh, I do not simply mean, you know, the physical flesh, the chunk of meat, right? But everything that makes us a human, our entire disposition, our way of thinking, right? Our emotional being, our logic, our reasoning, our mind, all of that, our flesh, is against God. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, our flesh, and that includes all of us, has been anti-God. Whatever that God says, we say no, no, no. Our flesh says no to God and would not respond to God's call. Our flesh has a mind of its own, and does whatever it thinks is logical and makes sense. And that's what we see here in this passage. Part of God's promise was that Abram would have his own son. Some time has passed, but still he's without a child. Abram, maybe, to his credit, may have been willing to wait for God, but Sarai was not. 
we see a prime example of the futility of human efforts to achieve God's blessing. In her impatience, Sarai tries to fulfill the divine blessing and promise through her own initiative by means of her maidservant, Hagar. Surrogate marriage, surrogate motherhood, was an acceptable practice during that time in the near ancient Near East. So it was not something new. And a child born this way could be regarded as the wife's own child. So that's what Sarai suggested to Abram. But just because it was a widespread custom in that culture does not mean that Genesis condones it. In fact, the narrator regards their action as a great mistake. When we see this, the wording of verses 2 and 3, if you can just post it there, it suggests that the author's disapproval because he clearly alludes to Genesis chapter 3. Do you you know what happened in Genesis chapter 3? Adam and Eve fell, right? So in verse 2, it says, Abram, uh, so um, at the end end of verse 2, it says, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, right? This phrase happens only here and in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. And 317, uh, if you can just go to that, yeah. And uh, to Adam, God speaking to Adam and said, To Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is a ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. But listen to that. You have listened to the voice of your wife. And that exact phrase happens in verse 2 of our chapter here. And also verse 3 we see the identical sequence of key nouns and the, the verbs in chapter 3, verse 6. Verse 3 says, so if you can go back, verse 3 of the, uh, our... But anyways, um, so basically, uh, you know, okay, let me just read it. Uh, so verse 3, so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And in chapter, um, and then if you go to uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 6, it says this. Uh, I'm just going to skip to the end and look at the, um, the underline. It says, she took of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate the woman takes the initiative on both instances, and the recipient of the gift in, the, in chapter 3 is the fruit, and here it's Hagar, right? And the recipient of the woman's offering is her husband. And what is offered is accepted by the man without reservation. The author is implying that these two events describe the comparable events that they are both accounts of a fall. You know, verse 3 says, this happened after, so that just even just the alluding to back to the, the account of fall in chapter 3, it tells us that Moses was really comparing the two, that there are parallels of what happened back in chapter 3 and here in this chapter. 
And verse 3 says that this happened after 10 years after Abram had settled in Canaan. Obviously, it uh, explains Sarah's concern to do something about their situation, but it also hints that the promise of the land has been fulfilled. That 10 years, a foreigner, an immigrant, coming into the land of Canaan, and for 10 years, he settled. And that was part of the promise of God. I will give you the land, the promised land. For 10 years, God has been fulfilling that promise. So God had promised him a son and the descendants, but he also promised him the land. So it's not like God has not fulfilled any of his promise. It was a partial fulfillment. So it would have, it should have have, it should have uh, strengthened their faith. But what, but what our flesh often does is that we only see the unfulfilled portion of God's promise. We, uh, we don't see, we, don't, we often do not see the promises that God has, fulfilled, uh, God has faithfully fulfilled. And isn't that true? Right? Think about how good and faithful God has been to each and every one of us. But what do we choose to focus on instead? The things that didn't happen yet for us. Going back to my marriage once again, you know, after just being so desperate and just asking God, somehow miraculously, God has brought such an amazing woman into my life, right? And so I was like, so happy. Thank you so much, God. You, you listen. You are, you are such a faithful God. Thank you so much. I'm going to serve you for the rest of my life. And I was so happy for first, you know, first <laughs> five, seven years. Um, yes, you know, I was, but guess what? And then I started noticing, wait a minute, God, uh, there are things that you are not doing this in this area. What about that area here and there? So I started, instead of really just once again, strengthening my faith, it was for a moment. And then once again, I look back, I look around and see other areas of my life that was in need and say, God, what about this? What about that, God? What, what, God, what, what are you doing? Right? And that is our flesh that instead of really just looking at the, the faithfulness and how God has been so good to us, we instead focus on things that are not panning out the way we want. Going through this cycle. And that's what we see in the life of Abram too, right? There were moments that he was victorious, he had acts of faith, but there are moments when he's just like struggling. He doesn't really fully trust God. Just like us, right? He's struggling. Once Hagar is pregnant with a child, she looks on Sarai, her mistress, with contempt. That same Hebrew word in chapter 12, verse 3, is translated curse. I will curse those who curse you. That's the same word that is used in the way Hagar looked on Sarai. Because now she is carrying the child. Talks about strong disdain, vile, scorn. You get the idea. I have something that you cannot have. Ha! Right? And that was the attitude of Hagar. So Sarai, as her mistress, cannot stand it. 
So she lays responsibility for the situation on who else? Abram. And he has been passive up to this moment. Until now, he has not really acted to protect their marriage. He may have been passive, maybe because maybe he wanted to protect the child. from, From Abram's perspective, he didn't know any better. So maybe this child that he had from his second wife, maybe he was a promised child, child of the promise. He didn't know. So maybe he was trying to protect. So he kind of turned a blind eye on what was going on between these two women. Right? So Sarah says, no, this is not right. This is not right. So uh, when she confronts him, uh, Abraham said, hey, hey she, she's your servant, right? Do it for as you please, right? Just, you know, take your feelings out on her, not me. What a coward. Right? He didn't want to get involved between these two women, what's going on? He said, you do whatever you wish with her. That she does with a vengeance. And the scripture says, she basically humiliates and oppresses Hagar. And the wording, once again, the same term is used later of the Egyptian slave masters, the way they treat Israelites, much later down the road, later part of Genesis and Exodus. So Sarah's, uh, Sarah's um, scheme gets more than, more than she bargained for. So this first scene ends in a total disaster for everyone involved. Hagar lost her home, Sarai, her, uh, her maid, and the trust of her husband, and Abram, his second wife, and possibly the child of the promise. You see, that's what happens when we try to get ahead of God. This scheme turns out, actually for them, this scheme turns out to have far-reaching consequences. It was, it was not more than uh, just a domestic strife resulting in dysfunctional family. It was more than that. Muslims hold that the great prophet Muhammad came through the line of Ishmael, meaning what had happened here in this chapter has brought the centuries, uh, centuries of all, uh, centuries-long conflicts between Jews and Arabs, the Christians and Muslims. That one family's choice, trying to make things happen on their own, brought all this. Think about the untold number of lives that were lost throughout centuries, throughout human history. Talk about crusades. Talk about 9-11 and still ongoing war on terror, all those things. Guess where all this started? Started from right here in this chapter. For Abram and Sarai, who simply could not wait for God to fulfill his promise. They said, okay, we, we can't wait for this. We can't really fully, fully trust God. We'll make this happen. Let's make this happen. If God promised a, a child, let's just go through this. Uh, everyone else does it. Let's do this. We cannot really fully compare this to the fall in Genesis chapter 3, but it's a pretty significant fall. I think that's why uh, Moses uses the same phrases that he has used in chapter 3 and here. The kind of fall that this has really, uh, what 
you know, how this all came about. Right? And this also explains why God had to wait until they were old, beyond what they could truly do, humanly possible, before he gave them the true son, uh, the, the promise, son of the promise, Isaac. They had to die to themselves before he could really do his work. God had to first chasten them, just work on them, break them down, so that they can really say, God, we can't do this. Hebrews chapter 11, 11 says this. By faith, Sarah, so how it's the, cha- the narrative has changed. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. You see how she has changed over the years from this time? But God had to wait until God had to deal with and break Sarah because she's, she was not a woman of faith. The way we see it in chapter 16, God had to break in. God had to work on our heart as well as Abram's to do his thing. Right. Faith and flesh do not mix. God calls us to a life characterized by faith, not by flesh. So that's what we see, the folly of the flesh. And the second point that we see is the mercy of God. The mercy of God. The second scene is set in the wilderness on the way to Egypt. Hagar is going, going back to her native land. Okay? She's like, I've had it. I can't stay with my mistress. I'm taking my you know, child inside. I'm going. Her defiant spirit and oppression from her mistress caused her to run away. But what we see is here is, once again, Hagar is not entirely innocent. Right? She definitely plays a part in the drama. Abram, Sarai, and Hagar all share the blame. But then what does God do? Does he say, well, you guys mess it up, you guys clean up your own mess. Right? I'm not going to really intervene here. You all got what you deserved. Right? Is that what God did? No. That's not what he does. We see the angel of the Lord appearing and speaking to her. It is really God who is speaking to Hagar in her crisis. And he asks Hagar where she, had, uh, where she has come from and where she's going in verse 8. And to Hagar, this question makes a lot of sense, perfect sense. But to the reader like us, right, it strikes as a rhetorical question. Just like God asking Adam in chapter, uh, chapter uh, 3, where are you? After the fall, Adam and Eve, as if, as if they could, try to hide from God. And so God reaches out to him. Adam, where are you? It's a rhetorical question. And once again, and also with Cain in uh, chapter 4, God once again asks, where are you, Cain? Or where, where is your brother Abel? In fact, this is the first time that God has asked someone where their whereabouts since the chapter 4. Once again, it parallels those earlier stories. And at least here's Hagar. It's pretty honest. Yeah, you know, it's my mistress. That's why I'm running away. I can't, I can't be with her. But then God tells her to go back to her mistress and promises her the multitude of descendants. And he tells her to name her child Ishmael, meaning God has heard. Right? What, is, what he's saying to Hagar is that I have 
heard your, and I have noticed your affliction. That's the significance of that name. That although Hagar was not promised relief from oppression, she was reassured that her suffering had been and will be noted by God, that it will not escape his attention and his eyes. And God has shown mercy to Hagar, not because she really deserved it, because she definitely played a part. She despised and cursed Sarai just because she has something that Sarai doesn't as a slave girl. So God has shown mercy to Hagar, not because she deserved it, but because of who he is, that he is a God of mercy. And isn't that what God has done for us through Jesus Christ? In our misery, in our sin, while we are yet sinners before God, that God has come to us. It's not because we ran after God. God, I need you. Please save me. No. We as sinners, we say, no, God, I, I want to have nothing to do with you. I'm going to do things my way. I want to have nothing to do with you. But God comes to us while we're yet sinners. And he offers his son so that we could have this eternal, uh, so that we could have this restored and recon, uh, life and the reconciliation with God. And after this encounter, Hagar says, "You are a God of seeing, or a God who sees me." It's her way of expressing God's gracious revelation to her. Think about this: for a slave girl all alone in the wilderness with no one looking out for her, where can she turn to? She has nobody looking out for her interest. God comes to her. God, and God says, I have seen you. God has seen her and reveals himself to her. You know, in scripture, when God sees, it also means God cares. Right? It tells us that God cares for people in the most unexpected situations. That's what we see. That is a God of mercy that we see consistently throughout the scriptures. In summary, though Sarai had hoped that the child would, come, uh, would count as her own, just like the custom at that time, as a mistress, she could, you know, she could have been, you know, the, the, Moses could have said, well, now the, then Ishmael is a son, uh, the son of Sarai, but that's not what we see in verses 15 and 16. It says, And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom, uh, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was eight, uh, 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. From these verses, it makes it quite clear that Ishmael was a son of Hagar and Abram, not of Sarai. Because there is a mention of three times of the Ishmael being the son of Abram and Hagar. But there is no mention of Sarai ever. It is Hagar who suffers and is vindicated in this story. Not Sarai, despite all her authority and her scheming. It is Hagar who is uh, vindicated. Hasty action coming from unbelief does not forward the divine purpose. But human error can be redeemed, at least partially, by God's grace. In God's protection of Hagar, we see how he's concerned with the afflicted. 
whoever they may be. Hagar was just an Egyptian slave, not really belonged to, to the promise of God, and yet God looks down on Hagar in her distress when she was in such affliction. God comes to her and ministers to her. And her experience of suffering as an Egyptian slave of Sarai is actually a countertype to the suffering of the Israelites in Egypt. What the Egyptians would do to the Sarai's children, Sarai did that to the, the child of the Egypt. But God, the point is that God listened to both. When Hagar was in her affliction, God listened. His mercy and compassion extend to all his creatures. Is anyone here going through suffering? Do you feel like you are in affliction? Do you feel like you are all alone, that there is no one that's really going to come to your rescue? This text tells us to turn to him, turn to Christ, because even as an Egyptian girl, he said, she says, God is a God who hears me. God is a God who sees me. And this story of Hagar really, to me, is the gospel story, is it not? That when we are in our misery, separated from God, knowing, not knowing where to turn, not knowing the truth, being blind and being in darkness, that God comes to us, not because we deserve something from God, not because we are better than other people, but God comes to us in his mercy. And he ministers. He reveals himself to Hagar and to us. He doesn't turn a blind eye when we are in need. But God says, I have seen you. I have seen your affliction. Hagar was not part of the promise of Abram. And yet, as she was going through such tragedy and difficult time, he comes to her and ministers to her. And that is the gospel story for all of us because we are just like Hagar. We are in our misery, hopeless and helpless, not knowing, having no hope, no meaning and purpose in life, roaming around in the wilderness of life. That God comes to us. Where have you come from? Where are you going? Let me show you the way. I will give you the promise. I will be with you. I will be your God. And as we think about this story, and as we turn to him, let's remember, even you may be going through some difficult moments in, in this life, at this moment, that God will not turn, turn his face away, but to really just look upon you. I say, so that our confession will be, yes, God is a God who sees. God is a God who hears me. May that be our um, testimony. And for those of us who are in Christ, I believe that has to be our testimony. Yes, God. Lord, you have seen me. You have heard me in my distress, in my affliction. Thank you, Lord. May that be everyone's testimony going forward. Let's pray.